Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast exists because of the paid subscribers at DecodingTV.com. Become a paid subscriber and get ad-free episodes as well as early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at Decoding TV who makes this podcast possible. Larry, um, how do you feel about telemarketing in general? Well, it's a much-needed service. I mean, well, needed by whom? Well needed, well, needed by most businesses. I mean, uh, I mean, in the case of CDG, it provides a public service almost by accident. By doing what? Providing jobs to people that are unemployable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Streaming, a Decoding TV podcast. I am David Chen. I'm Patrick Klubbeck. Each week, this week in streaming, we'll cover a show that's new and interesting in the world of streaming. We'll tell you if it's worth watching, and if it is, we'll review and spoil and discuss the entire season of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing in its entirety the three-part HBO docuseries, Telemarketers. Uh, next week, we'll be covering How To with John Wilson, season three, also in its entirety. These are relatively short TV shows. That's why we didn't do like a premiere review and then do the whole season review. Um Telemarketers is three parts. How to with John Wilson, I think six episodes, uh, uh, each half hour long. So uh, we will look forward to discussing these with you here at Decoding TV and This Week in Streaming. Find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com and find us across all platforms, Instagram, threads, TikTok, at Decoding TV. Uh, I also want to mention, Patrick Klepek, you may have noticed uh, it's a little bit of an uh, odd time in Hollywood right now. Uh, mm. a, 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 an odd and difficult time, uh, given that there is a simultaneous writers and actors strike going on. Uh, we fully support what the writers and actors are trying to do. Uh, but a lot of stuff in the TV and film schedule is changing all the time. It's a very fluid situation. Uh, so the next six months are a little bit unclear in terms of what is going to happen and what we're going to be covering. However, I do want to mention that I did make a post over at the Decoding TV newsletter, which you can find at decodingtv.com, uh, just asking folks what you want us to uh, cover. What, what are you watching? What are you interested in having us discuss here on uh, Decoding TV? Uh, so let us know. Head on over to decodingtv.com. You can become a free or a paid subscriber. Of course, extremely grateful to paid subscribers for making this podcast possible. Uh, but if you become a free subscriber, you can comment on this post and let us know what you're going to be watching this fall. Uh, you can also always email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, Patrick, a lot of, uh, a lot of shows uh, in the mix there that uh, I uh, hadn't even thought about, which is great. You know, I, I, I look at the calendar pretty regularly. Uh, mm-hmm. But for instance, I saw a lot of love for uh, this Mr. and Mrs. Smith show. Uh, that's going to be coming out. Uh, so. Donald Glover's in that show, right? Mm, like, yeah. uh, uh, so I, you know, pretty much anything I'll, I'll like watch, watch with him in it. Like sometimes when we do, when we've talked about shows where we're uh, thinking about covering, we're discovering that the the release dates have shifted as we're talking about covering it. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh no, that one's in. I can't remember what the show was, but the show you had suggested, and I was looking it up. I'm like, 
David, I think this is coming out in November now. Right, that's right. It was supposed right. to have come out in uh, August. There was September. a show called uh, Murder at the End of the World that was Correct. supposed to come out Correct. earlier. I think it was supposed to come out this summer, and it shifted to November. Uh, but also saw uh, Fall of the House of Usher. That is a, the next Mike Flanagan thing. I thought Midnight Mass was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, so. gosh, my, my, oh be still my beating heart. I'm glad yeah. we're on the same page there, because I, 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 I have quite liked... I pretty much like everything uh, Mike Flanagan touches. He is essentially the cinematic equivalent of, he has the temperament of Stephen King and obviously Stephen King being one of my favorite authors, like having someone that both understands his work, able to adapt it and then have that same sort of tone in, in their own work is I'm always excited for the next yeah. project. The most, yeah. the most recent one did, did nothing for me. It didn't even make it through the, the pilot. Uh, was it uh, the midnight club uh, or no, was it the, um, it was an adaptation of a young adult uh, series yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. last year. It did, didn't do much for me, but this seems a little more Midnight Massy. And so I had completely forgotten that show was even coming out. Well, I mean, the, the ramp up to a Netflix show is usually about a week before you're like, oh, right, that's coming out. Okay. Uh, which, by the way, is not a terrible way to do it, I have to say. Mm. Um, like how how early in advance do you tell someone that something is coming out? Uh, opinions may differ on it. You know, do you, do you hype it up for six months continuously, or do you just say, "Hey, boom! Tomorrow it's dropping." Like, right? What makes a bigger impact? What gets people to actually take action? Uh, I don't think it's a hundred percent cut and dry. Anyway, thanks to everyone for sharing your thoughts, and uh, we are incorporating them into what we're doing. So, uh, if you email us at decodingtv@gmail.com or comment at decodingtv.com, that will shape what we cover in the future. But this fall, uh, we the the next big thing we're pr- probably going to cover is uh, the Continental uh, from the world of John Wick. Really excited about that show, uh, and it, it, it's basically coming out in three. 90 minute short films is what I could tell. Right? Like it's basically like three episodes, each of which is like over an hour long. So I have like um, no idea what to expect from it either. Like I yeah, like, yeah. like my expectations are not necessarily in the basement. I just don't know what a John wick television show even is, um, which makes me <laughs> awfully, yeah. awfully curious to see what they, what they came up with. Yeah. And also uh, Loki season two is coming up. That looks actually honestly pretty interesting. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think it looks probably better than Secret Invasion, but who knows? We'll see. We'll, <laughs> well see. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, one that's a very uh, low bar to, to, to like having Tom Hiddleston probably. Uh, well, there's a lot of great actors in that. Sh- Doesn't matter. I think it's going to be good. I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't know what I was trying to yeah, say. Yeah, Secret yep. Secret Invasion didn't hurt for good actors, but yeah. No, that's true. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I uh, again want to thank all the folks who are paid subscribers at DecodingTV.com. We're entering a very. Uh, not only weird time in the industry, but even if there were no strikes going on, it would be an odd time in TV anyway, uh, because there are very few like zeitgeist defining shows uh, like Andor or um, uh, House of the Dragon or uh, Last of Us out right now. Um, but I'm really grateful to Patrick Klepek for stepping into the co-host chair, and he's going to be with us for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, We're the zeitgeist, David. We're making <laughs> we, it ourselves. We're manifesting zeitgeist unto this podcast. Indeed, we will. We will define the zeitgeist. And so, I appreciate Patrick stepping in and your contributions uh, at decodingtv.com help to fund this podcast and to keep it going uh, long into the future. So, thanks to everyone who is supporting us, uh, however you can. All right. So let's get into telemarketers. 
this is a three-part docuseries that recently concluded airing on HBO. It's available right now, streaming on Max, the one to watch for HBO. And I was intrigued by this documentary because, A, I'm just into documentaries in general. Patrick Klepek, I don't know how often you watch documentaries, but like I, they're a huge part of my media diet. Uh, and they and I'm just going to be hipster about it and say they were before uh, Netflix was making 500 documentaries a year. You know, like there was a time in our lives when, you know, it was very rare to watch a documentary because they didn't come out easily accessible very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, because of streaming, uh, tons of people watch documentaries. But I um, yeah, does it does it count if uh, when I went to see the Blair Witch as a child that I got to the conclusion of seeing that movie irresponsibly in the theater with uh, my father. And I said, I turned to him and said, why would they let them show that in a movie theater? Those people are dead. Cause I, I didn't really fully grasp the fact that I, I, I fell for the faux documentary nature of the Blair Witch when I was, you know, 13 or whatever. I mean, and we didn't, uh, we were both in high school when like middle school, high school, when mm-hmm. Blair Witch came out and like, that was, the part of the marketing was that this was a real found footage movie, but hook uh, line sinker, just Jesse, you got me uh movie. There's a reason that it tormented me for an entire summer and probably remains my favorite horror film of all time, largely based on how terrorized I was as a kid. That's amazing though. Right? Like you could never do that today because of the internet no. and stuff. But back, back then I, I remember reading an advertisement for Blair Witch Project to be like, you know, this film was the only, like, three people went into the woods. This film was the only thing that was found. And uh, and thinking what a terrifying concept that was. I know! Uh, yeah. Like, so, trying to imagine the end of that film yeah. and then looking at yourself and going, why would the police let them release this? This is, <laughs> this is, this is terrible. Uh, and then there was the, I don't know if you ever watched like the sci-fi channel documentary, like, mm-hmm. like a faux documentary they did alongside it about like, anyway, like I could do a yeah. whole thing about the Blair Witch because of how, but like, that was, that is probably my first like experience with what we would call <laughs> a documentary or like the format was the Blair Witch project. And then, and then for me, it's the kind of thing where, uh, I, it's the, I watch documentaries in small chunks eating lunch. Like that is like what I will put on when I'm like telling myself, don't look at email. Don't look at social media. Like this mm-hmm. is your 20 minutes to do anything other than that while you eat a salad. And, and your reward is watching documentaries. Is that what you're saying? A reward is some sort of like horrifying, like documentary that like upsets me for the 20 minutes of eating the salad. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Like Excellent. I'm currently watching one that you recommended, which was, uh, 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 burden of proof. The one on HBO oh. about the, um, the, 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 the son who thinks his father killed his sister. So, you know, just, Mmm, eating this healthy salad and feeling good about myself. While indeed, I clip indeed. away at this at fifteen minutes a, a pop. Well, anyway, as I was saying, uh, this documentary intrigued me because a, I'm into documentaries. B, the talent attached to this documentary, uh, specifically Danny McBride is an executive producer, as were the Safdie brothers. Hmm. Uh, so. I'm reading here from a uh, article in the Los Angeles Times that explains this. You know, the director, uh, Adam Lippincern, says, quote, I always obsessed over it becoming something. Uh, and then it, it was uh, during a break in the project when Lippincern reached out to Bala Lug, a cousin he didn't know, who is a documentary film filmmaker, 
Um, and then that person had a deal with David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's production company. Then uh, they came on as executive producers. And then they also took the project to Josh and Benny Safdie, who they were originally thinking could, could maybe direct the movie. But they also came on as executive producers. So no one wanted to direct it, but they did want to have their names attached to it. Uh, and that is fair because there's some interesting stuff in the documentary. Uh, but yeah, that's, there's all this like amazing names attached to it. So I'm like, okay, what did those people see in this project? These people whose creative taste I trust see in this project so let's get into it we're going to talk about our overall thoughts then we're going to recap and spoil the whole thing and then talk about a few additional topics after that patrick klepek what did you think overall of telemarketers the three-part docuseries uh, one of the strangest things i have watched in a long a time i i, I mean that as uh, a compliment and also perhaps a warning um uh, to others um because i think Necessarily characterizing this as a uh, like a, tr- a true crime documentary because of the way that format has been sort of you know the net the, kind of the Netflixication of documentaries right I think there is a certain expectation of like what when you say ooh like there's this new true crime documentary out and it's true the, there are things in this <laughs> this universe series that are true there are crimes <laughs> and there are cameras being held that are at times attempting the form of a documentary. Um, but I, it's, you know, I, I, I just, I, you know, as I was watching it, it really, I was struck by, it's like, what if you just gave two amateurs all the resources to make a documentary, but didn't necessarily like walk them through what, to, <laughs> what to do in that process. Like yeah. um, just two guys who like want to Google something and like, let's find an answer. Like that's what this is. And it's, it is fascinating the degree to which so many things are left unresolved. I think uh, you watch a lot more documentaries than me, but the ones that uh, I have watched over the years, like there is still frequently an arc. It's not necessarily towards a positive resolution, mm-hmm. but there is a place that it's going to leave you at the end. And I don't, telemarketers is not really interested in that, or if it's interested in that, it's more about the arc of its characters doing the documentary than it is about what is it investigating. Yeah. And the, the 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 over the three parts, it has a really interesting tension between like wanting to do an expose about the telemarketing industry, but also the interiority of the lives of the people and why they want to pursue this uh, and. Where you come out at the end of that, in some ways, is going to be how invested do you get in these characters? Because I would, there's not a lot of resolution at the end. Like, there's not necessarily the sort of uh, uh, there, there's frustration. There, there is a resolution, but it's, it's I, I guess it's a traditional in terms of like how I expect the conclusion of this to, to to wrap up. And I found it to still be, I found the unsatisfying nature of it extremely satisfying because I was invested in these characters and. Uh, you know, when documentaries, uh, I'm sure you can, when they're in multiple parts, can have cliffhangers. Few of them have the cliffhangers that you get in the second episode of this show to the point where I had meant to text you about it because I was sort of losing my mind. I was like, what am I watching? What is going <laughs> to happen in this? And we'll get into all that because it's really about unpacking these characters at, at the heart of it. But I, you know, if you are someone, I think like yourself, David, who has watched a lot of these, is very familiar with the form. 
man, if you're just interested in watching something fundamentally different, I don't know that you're going to get something, um, um, you know, you're going to get that in this show. It is just fascinating from top to bottom. And I was riveted. I th- I, it cuts off in a place where I was like, I could have watched three more of these. We could have stopped investigating the telemarketers and we could have just hung out with these guys. Like, what's Pat up to? Like, I need to know. Um, but uh, I, I, it comes with a, a strong recommendation. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's a world that we're all familiar with and irritated with. But my guess is know very little about how it actually functions. And um, I was left at the end of Telemarketers wanting to do my own research into, into it. It's not a documentary that ne- necessarily leaves you uh, feeling like, ah, we've exhausted what's here. It feels like you've frankly just scratched the surface uh, by the end of it, because that's not really the point of what they're trying to do here. But uh, I found it, I found it fascinating and interesting uh, all the same, even if it's as a traditional as, as one of these comes. That's all very beautifully said. And I pretty much agree with a hundred percent of that. So I don't even need to talk today. No, I'm just joking. But <laughs> I think uh, it, very, very nicely done, Patrick. I think that I have a couple of observations. First of all, I, I wasn't joking earlier when I said that uh, streaming has resulted in in a sort of revolution when it comes to documentary filmmaking. Like we are now in the midst of way more documentaries than we ever had for most of my lifetime, and it's all because uh, streamers like Netflix have made it really easy to access documentaries. Um, prior to the streaming model. Documentaries were not widely commercially viable unless you had a movie like Fahrenheit 9/11 or you know a Michael Moore documentary. Um, but if hey, you don't need to worry about making money at the theater, you don't need to worry about getting people to the theater. You can just put it streaming at home. Uh, you know, theoretically, the 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 theory goes you can make a bunch of them, which is what Netflix has done, and we are now seeing documentaries being made about stuff immediately after it happens, while it happens. Uh, you know, in the middle of the thing when the thing is even over yet. Um, I've been interviewed for like when uh, I did reporting on a lot of the uh, the GameStop uh, uh, stock meme uh, stuff that was happening back at back at Vice and like Vice was producing a documentary. They have an they had an internal documentary unit and they were producing a documentary as it was unfolding. And I had a crew come to my house to interview me about this thing that I was not yet done reporting on right, uh, like, right. which and because it was part of a race between multiple announced yeah. documentaries that essentially were land grabbing hey this thing is popular people will want to watch a like filmed wikipedia with interesting personalities version of of this and that was like one time that i actually intersected with that because of my bunch of my reporting like helped form the basis of of the documentary they were putting together yeah, I mean, people. Not I'm not. I don't consider myself part of that. People. I don't like just a filmed Wikipedia version necessarily. I want something a little bit more interesting. But if it had Patrick Klepek in it, that's like a huge selling <laughs> point. That's a huge selling point for me right off the bat. Uh, but yeah, so I think as a result of that, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to have documentaries that have unfinished storylines. Like that. That is what's going to happen because you you're making them so quickly. Let me give you another example. Hulu and Netflix produced two Fire Festival documentaries. Like each produced a Fire Festival documentary. The guy that did the Fire Festival, he just got out of jail. He's doing Fire Festival too. <laughs> now those documentaries are basically incomplete. 
So anyway, uh, I, I think a part of the reason why, like, basically, I'm saying, I think this documentary feeling like uh, it's incomplete feels of a piece with many documentaries feeling incomplete. That said, they had been working on this one for a little bit more time than many <laughs> of those documentaries. Uh, a this, lifetime, arguably. This documentary <laughs> like takes place. Doc, it, uh, telemarketers takes place over the course of many years. Um, so. Uh, so that's just something that you made me think about. The other thing, uh, Chris Yimon, we're broadcasting live at youtube.com slash decoding TV. Chris Yimon says, did they have resources? Because they were bumming McDonald's Wi-Fi. Yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know how many filmmaking it's, resources they had. Well, but there is a but, sequence when they go to the uh, police union convention or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I forget, like, and there's a like there's a sequence in the hotel, like in their room, where they kind of realize like they've been got like people understand what they're here to do. And they're worried that the hotel is going to like take their footage away or something like that. And there is like a real producer. Right. Right. It, it, does, feel, it, it does feel like the, the number of resources increases as the series goes on. Like I think the post <laughs> um, like with the endings, but like there's a yeah. episode three, episode starting episode two, two, three, right, yeah, episode yeah. three. It seems like that's when they have the connection with Hollywood yeah, and yeah, yeah. like Danny McBride and like that and like the safties and things like that. Yeah, and, yeah. um, and they do a real, and we'll, we'll probably unpack that and talking about it. But like they do a really good job of like, I think they have resources and I think I've read in some of the articles about it. Like they would do conversation with this, like the safties about like, what would be interested to read? Like, what should you be doing reporting on? Like here are angles that might be right. interesting too, but they do a really good job of, just letting these two maintain the lead. Like there's people setting up lights and cameras, but you still broadly get the sense that these two, which were the heart at the beginning, remain at the heart at the end, even if they have people along the margins, like helping point them in a direction or allowing them to pull off something a little more ambitious than what the two of them might do. Cause yes, they still are using McDonald's Wi-Fi for huge amounts of this documentary. <laughs> uh, I think that there are some interesting insights about telemarketing in here, um, but it's primarily about the the people in the doc. The series telemarketers is about the people in the documentary, and if you don't find them at least somewhat interesting, I don't think you'll enjoy the documentary very much. You know, because it's really becomes about them, their journeys. Uh, and what it's like for them to try to make a doc. It's a, it's a documentary about the making of the documentary, basically, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so I, I, the, the caveat is there, Patrick. If you're expecting a really lean, efficient, hard-hitting docu-series about telemarketing industry, you'll be disappointed. Charts, but if you want graphs, like yeah, like if you, but if lots you want some really detailed interviews with experts, like that's you still come away with a broad sense of yeah. how scummy this world is, but it is. Its intent is it has a narrative that is not just explicitly about informing the public about telemarketing and what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last question before we dive into a more detailed discussion of the show. Uh, what has been your relationship with telemarketers throughout your life? Uh, like, how, yeah, how have how have you perceived telemarketers? Because I'm going to tell you right now. When I was a kid. Uh, you know, my parents, their understanding of English was not that good, but they would get these calls from these places mm -hmm. and they knew inherently like, hey, they, they like I hear I remember hearing them saying, like, I don't want to do, you know, I don't have any money, don't want to do this, da, 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 hang up like and they would just tell me to like hang up. Um, they understood the danger from a very young age and it was very from when I was a very young age and it was very 
interesting to basically see what the other side of that call was from all these calls that I got when I was a kid, right? Um, but yeah, I'm curious, like, have you, have you ever encountered these people when you were a kid? Like, um, what, what has been your relationship with telemarketers, particularly the ones depicted in this docuseries? Uh, I, I can't, nothing like springs to mind when I was younger, but it's definitely something where I've had to have a lot of conversations with my mother who's older now. She's, uh, she'll be turning 73 and it was like around like her mid sixties, like, Hey, like she's got all her faculties. Like I'm not, yeah. We're like yeah. worried about her on a day to day basis, but she, like a lot of people of that age, like they can use an iPad and an iPhone and like they have a, but they like there, there are limits on their understanding of like technology, its relationship with data and like privacy sharing. And so my big thing with my mom is if you ever get a phone call where people need personal information, like, and like. To ask for proof of it, like send something in them. If you ever, like yeah. the IRS doesn't call you. If someone's calling on behalf of the IRS, they can send you some paper in the mail explaining some of that or hang up, call me. And like, I will know the red flags. Like just say like, you're going to call back and consult your son. And like, I was like, mom, most of those places, they're just going to hang up on you the moment you say that. Cause they know that they're not going to get anything mm-hmm. from you at that point. But just Never, you know, we go over the big ones like social security number, like passwords to anything, clicking on a link that you don't recognize, like never do any of that stuff. Because like the big, the big thing that's not covered here that is different about now um, is how that has been digitized, right? Is, is scams that are occurring in email form, in text form. So for me, it's been less about like, like respecting the troops, um, like sort of. Uh, what's depicted here, um, it's really more about uh, telemarketers and scam artists trying to exploit the same groups of people, right? Like a lot of what's depicted in here is exploiting fixed income individuals, elderly individuals, people without support system, people without like a son to call to be like, is this a fine? And yeah. um, so that's a lot of my interactions with it these days. Otherwise, it's like, is there a new app I can download on my phone that will block more of these calls? that I'm getting, you know, you still like my personal phones have like gotten better. Where like my iPhone will say like spam risk, you know, and you can sort of ignore something, but the call still goes through. <laughs> and, like I still have to like hang up on it. And it's a, it's a pain in the butt, but I've, I've never been fortunately like no one in my life has been fully tricked by one of those things, but I'm definitely having regular conversations with um mostly my mom because she's the one that I interact with the most on a on a week to week basis to make sure that I am covering her bases on sort of like the rhetoric to look for that is going to be someone who's trying to just squeeze something out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh what a nice son Patrick Klepek is. And you know what? That's a good I got to I got to tell my mom some of those things too now that you mention it. So instead of what I've said to her before, you're on your own. No, I'm just joking. Um <laughs> But uh, anyway, I, I, I agree with Patrick's assessment. This is a, a pretty interesting show. There's some great footage in the show, interesting personalities. Uh, I would also recommend the show uh, overall. But again, if, if you don't find the main characters interesting or charming in any way, it's not going to be the show for you. And I, I can understand that they're a little bit of an acquired taste. So those are our overall thoughts on telemarketers. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, Patrick, let's talk about some of the stuff that actually happened in the show. Telemarketers is a true crime documentary about two former telemarketers who witnessed the corruption and exploitation of a, one telemarketing firm in particular, Civic Development Group, a.k.a. CDG, and they make it their life's mission to try and take the company and the industry down. At the heart of the show is Sam Lippman Stern. I think I might have said Adam Lippman Stern earlier. I apologize. Sam Lippman Stern and his yeah, I think Adam friend. is his cousin, right? Like the one that comes right, in right. From, from Hollywood, yeah. Apologies. Uh, Sam Lippman Stern and his best friend, Pat J. Pespis, who spent years working at CDG, calling vulnerable populations largely on behalf of police and firefighters unions and asking for donations in exchange for a sticker or a decal. The two watched as, as CDG and the unions pocketed most of the money with a trivial amount helping anyone the CDG marketers claimed they were intended for. While working at CDG, Sam filmed a chaotic work environment that was often filled with sex, drugs, and all manner of party, partying, with the first-person footage accidentally serving as Sam's route into producing a real documentary. When Sam and Pat are tipped off about how CDG's business actually works, they begin a years-long journey to interview people in and around CDG, telemarketing, police unions, Congress, and more. As the documentary is getting underway, Pat, a longtime drug addict, disappears. Let's pause there for a moment, Patrick. At the end of episode two of three, the documentary really feels like it's picking up steam and then Pat vanishes. And you said you were going to text me, like, what was your reaction at that point? Like, tell me more about that. Well, I mean, the end of episode two has Sam going around to, uh, I think if anyone has had someone who's had struggles with addiction in their life, like it is not uncommon that when they're missing or have not been seen that you go to the places, which like a job, like regular hangouts, um, spots where they've been known to, um, you know, use drugs in in the past. And you very much get the feeling that like, as Sam is like pulling up to like, looks like, like a sewer, like somewhere under a bridge. Um, and that like, he's calling like, like Pat, Pat, like I'm (laughs) fully expecting like the next episode is going to open up with like him finding a corpse, um, around, uh, they're not, you know, we've never, the, documentary always like Pat is depicted as like a fun partier, right? Like using drugs, like a lot. Um, but we never really grasp this, the seriousness of like what depths is he in? Like, is this, how much is this harming his life? How much is this like preventing him from escaping sort of the trap that is working for a telemarketing firm that regularly uses, um, like folks in society that have a hard time, 
finding jobs elsewhere. And on one hand, it's great that those people can get paid. On the other hand, they're also getting exploited in the process. Um, and so I, at that moment, I was like, this documentary could literally go anywhere. If you yeah. told me it's going to drop the entire conceit of investigating telemarketing, and then this is going to just become about like Pat and yeah. his life and like the conclusion of this is going to be and actually like these two guys never were going to be able to take down or expose any of this. That was kind of just a fun farce that these two have been on to kind of like fill their lives with additional meaning. But that really the final episode would be about how this like firm and others like it exploit vulnerable populations, not just in how they acquire their profits, but how they acquire their labor and, and their workforce. And that's definitely a through line in uh, the three parts, but it's not its central focus for sure. Uh, and so I just, it was one of those moments where, again, the be, it only works because you've become invested in the arcs of these characters and kind of rooting for them, not even necessarily to take down this group or these organizations, because that seems probably beyond their reach, but that, I don't know, you just want to see them be happy and get so, like something that amounts to a win. And, uh, but it also is this moment where it provides a pretty, for the first time, it feels like the documentary really kind of grounding the seriousness of Pat's situation, like something that is not shuffled off to the side, but it's definitely not foregrounded. Um, and you suddenly have this sense like, Oh, like the shots of like Pat, like drinking and doing drugs, like the life of the party and the legend as the telemarketer, I mean, that's all true, but then maybe that was masking something much more serious that was happening uh, underneath. And obviously it's resolved in a much happier way by the time we pick up with them again. But that's that's where I that's where I ended up as a result of that moment at the end of season or episode two. Yeah, it's not until years later that Sam uh, that that uh, Sam and a cleaned up and much happier Pat reunite. I think it's like around a decade or so later. Yeah. Nine uh, years, I think, is like the, I think we're, when they're like having their re, their in-person reunion, like, I think there's a comment, like, how long since you've seen each other in person? And you're right. It was, if it's not 10 years, it was awfully close. That's just impressive when a documentary has that much scope in general. Yeah. Like, it's just yeah. the, the idea that you're filming or pursuing this project for like 10 years or so uh, is amazing. So the two collaborates with Sam Cousins, uh, sorry, the two collaborate with Sam's cousin, Adam, who works in film and connected them with a real production crew. The documentary picks up in earnest in the final episode, culminating in a meeting with U.S. Senator Blumenthal, who once made headlines for going after corrupt telemarketing firms as a state attorney general. Blumenthal gives the pair only a few minutes only to ignore them. The documentary ends with Pat proudly hanging a photo of him and Senator Blumenthal on the wall. So, Patrick Klepek, obviously, I think a big part of your enjoyment of this documentary is whether you find Pat J. Pespis an interesting person. It is charming and at times very funny to see this guy struggle and go up against some of the most formidable forces in U.S. society. But I didn't find the interviews particularly well done. Uh, some of them were pretty rough. Nor did I find the documentary that hard-hitting, likely because these people are not trained journalists or documentarians, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, I guess, both, in my opinion, a bug and a feature of the documentary. What did you think of Pat J. Pespis and him basically serving as an interviewer for many of these segments, uh, which the director himself says, it hadn't occurred to me that Pat might be bad at this uh, at some point. So, yeah, what did you think of Pat J. Pespis basically as the kind of proto-protagonist of this, of this documentary? 
you know, impossible not to root for. I think my favorite ongoing bit, which does get a payoff in the final moments of the documentary when they have the meeting with uh, Senator Blumenthal is his commitment to wearing the sunglasses, <laughs> like everything. <laughs> and like, I love wearing sunglasses. Sometimes I wear them indoors by accident. I get it. But the commitment to wearing them when he's doing these sometimes high profile interviews. And then I believe Sam asks him like, clearly it's kind of been something that's bugging, been bugging him as well. It's like, Hey, like maybe take off the sunglasses. And then Pat has this moment where he's like, well, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, but like, I'm going to take them off like real dramatic. Like, and like it was just like, I, I, I think it's one of those things will probably c- can rub people some the wrong way, the way they, kind of put Pat out there to flail um, in in front of these moments. But ultimately, I think it's really tied to the thesis of the documentary, whether it's one they knew they were doing while they were making it or one that's constructed, you know, with the help of the filmmakers they're working with. And it's something that comes together in editing where you're cobbling together a narrative out of this, like, probably tens of thousands of hours of footage that they're, that they're sitting on and sifting through is like, this is ultimately a story about uh, dirt bags exploiting vulnerable populations. And then what happens when the average person says this is bullshit. And what happens is basically nothing. And I do think that is reflective of society where like, I think like it ending with a person in power who, yes, is also part of institutions uh, that have their own restrictions, the Senate in particular being a monstrous one. But um, you appeal to the people who say that they care and they can't do anything either. And so like, I think Pat's tenacity like represents the best of like something we all do, which is we sit around and have conversations with friends, colleagues, family and go, man, that shouldn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you look up about it or you watch a documentary, but you don't do anything about it. Um, because we as individuals or even collectively as like a voting block can just do so little to affect change. And this documentary series is like, Hey, like let's go find answers. Like if we don't have an answer here, let's go find it somewhere else. And they take that to its logical conclusion, which is to talk to a sitting U.S. senator who has a history of working against these forces. And so I don't think the documentary series works, frankly, at, uh, like as well, unless Pat is at the forefront, because I think he represents the average person having average questions about feeling squeezed by the world and watching him kind of get squished like a bug like along the way uh, to try to find those answers, I think makes the point of um, like what was happening. And like, frankly, like the, the, the documentary is concluding moment of dude, that guy doesn't give a shit about you. He does not care about you, about your cause. Like the staff here doesn't. And yet he walks out, looks at this photo and is proud of the journey and meeting this person. And that means something to him. And I think like those two things, moments side by side, like end up making the broader like points of this documentary in totality. Beautifully said, as usual, Patrick, I think 
I find incompetence to be much less endearing than most people. <laughs> like, I think, I think, yeah, Pat, Pat seems like a lovely human being. He's taking care of his, uh, wife who has cancer, I think, or had like mm-hmm. some kind of severe disease. Um, uh, uh, my wife also has like immune system issues. So like I've had to be very COVID careful, which also Pat is. So it was like very like, I admired him just for that alone, you know? Uh, and, I think it is pretty incredible that they were able to get into an actual senator's office and get an audience with them. But the fact that he handled a bunch of things kind of like, I am a person who's into competence porn personally. Like I love seeing somebody who's really good at something executed. Like that's just, that's just a thing that really appeals to me. And therefore the opposite of that is like, unappealing to me right is like when somebody (laughs) uh has an opportunity and then blows it right like calling someone the wrong name calling an interview subject the wrong name or having a barbecue (laughs) uh sauce on your hands when you're trying to accost someone you know um or in the case of blumenthal i thought like the interview wasn't uh wasn't particularly well done like everyone was like yeah you did a great job it's like he didn't even ask him a single question as far as i could tell like mm-hmm. uh so that part i i didn't find like i I'll, I'll just say i was ambivalent on the character of pat on the character and person of pat in terms of you know a character in this docuseries yes very charming lots of great qualities uh i can understand why he'd be an affable likable individual but also as somebody who likes watching documentaries and investigative journalism, um, some of Pat's techniques or lack thereof rankled uh, me personally. So I was a little bit more mixed on that front. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely see that and uh, you know sympathize with the with the point. I think there's an interesting moment in I forget where it's in the second or third episode, but um, broadly speaking, the documentary's framing is. Uh, Pat doing a lot of like taking his telemarketing, like his ability to talk to people, to persuade. And the, the, the theory of the case is that, well, you put him in front of these powerful people and he'll be able to elicit answers. And obviously mm-hmm. that rarely ends up happening. But I think over the, over the case, the, uh, the, the kind of the course of the documentary, which kind of revealed is that like Sam is like the really smart one, right? Like now that Pat, you know, I'm not trying to denigrate Pat's like intellectual, like curiosity, but like Sam's really kind of put together. And like, there's a moment where Sam is interviewing. I think it's one of the ex FTC people that had like investigated this. And he's, it's not a proper interview where it's like person on the left person on the right. Instead, like the camera is like a more like is, is, is is one camera on the ex FTC person. And then there's, there's a camera shot that's on, uh, Sam and Pat, but Sam is up front. Sam is like seated across right, from right. this person. And so as a result, just due to my physical positioning, he is leading the interview yeah. and doing a much more effective job. And there's a moment where Pat pipes in and is it's not really additive. And, and it's yeah. sort of like, yeah. it's, it's doing what he often does, which is stumbling into a rant about how unfair it is as opposed yeah. to like making a point and like building evidence uh, and, and towards like a broader case uh, to, to, to be the effective in your sort of like argument. And you see Sam, he doesn't snap, but you can see, you can see the irritation and he mm-hmm. like works Pat down and then makes his way back to uh, like making his point in, in the, in the piece. And I think like that actual 
like tension between it's not really tension because I think like Sam willingly sort of gives up that spotlight like, right, and right. like and like frames that as a documentarian as a creative. But um, I think there's like a very real world where if if Sam is the one in that interview chair, you're probably much happier. Not that he is trained journalist, but he seems better prepared, like more articulate and like could have, could have, uh, I think bridged the gap between what you were looking for while still maintaining a lot of the sense and style of the documentary that is very unique to itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think people can be mixed on Pat J. Pespa's documentarian and their, uh, and their opinion on him. Uh, but one of the things I really loved about this docuseries, Patrick is by far the most thrilling part was watching telemarketers actually do their job. Yeah. Like when you're introduced to Pat, you it will film Pat J. Pespis doing an entire call and you see, wow, how good he is at it. Um, and later on, there's a guy who is actively injecting drugs into himself, uh, then does like cold call someone off of a construction line, uh, off of a phone number he sees on the street. Just cold call someone and is able to extract money from that person. That was uh, incredible. The yeah. battery dying. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, oh my god. That is comp. That's competent sport. I'm talking about right. Like you're watching yeah. people who are really good at their job extract money from people, even though it's terrible. Uh, but it's also very intoxicating. Uh, I will say, watching this basically junky uh, talk, you know, this Blue Lives Matter person out of you know, giving their credit card up. I was like, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure who I'm rooting for in this situation. <laughs> um, but do you feel like you learned anything about what it takes to be a good telemarketer on the show and kind of, uh, what did you think of those sequences? Yeah. I mean, I was just impressed at people's like conversational skills. Like that yeah. is just not a skill I share. Um, and so obviously it's being used to monstrous ends, you know, like that, yeah. I believe there's like a one sequence where uh, it's one of the folks who is um, kind of like uh, blurred out and their voices change. And they talk about how they extracted something like $70,000 from a guy who was clearly dying, had no one else in his life. And they were just like every week calling and just getting a thousand dollars on him. And so like, it's really impressive uh, obviously as a form of communication and then just like, the moment you snap out of like watching someone being very good at that and having those skills trained on the worst, <laughs> the worst possible thing to be doing to people. Um, and, and then the, the, the cutaways you get to like the, the brief times you get like an entryway into these people's lives. Like, I think there's a sequence where um, I don't think it's Pat. I think it's um, the guy who works from home. He's the one that's mm -hmm. always like, as the guy who, the call goes who killed, wrong, who killed like, someone, yeah, yes, and he's and he's, he's always like yeah. swearing and, and jilting, uh, like uh, you know whoever, um, like he wasn't able to close a deal on. There's a sequence where they just go over the opening conversation, like the first like thirty seconds with a bunch of people rapidly, and it's just a bunch of people like in. It's a bunch of older people who just don't have people in their life. like they're just at right. home doing nothing, and in many ways this call from a human yeah. is like maybe the only human connection they're getting that day. And yeah. They because they'll it. call, they'll call and they'll say, Hey, how are you doing today? And then the person will say, Oh, you know, my back is bothering me today. And 
um, my son was supposed to visit, but he, you know, and like they'll just like yeah. start talking, and it's like that's one of the few points of human connection that they'll have. And these telemarketers uh, who are extracting money for nefarious ends exploit that human loneliness in people, right? Yeah, it's just it's just brutal. Um, and I mean, in general, like you watch, uh, like our society, like has a real problem with what do people do when they quote unquote like serve their time and like come out like what does society offer them and like it offers them this like it offers like people who have talents and things mm-hmm. to apply to society uh, a way to just exploit other people because what are they also they supposed to do and like there are extreme ends of this like <laughs> the guy who killed someone and then there are people who just struggle with addiction or grew up poor yeah. and got into trouble and then they get out and this place, I mean, the, like the fact that like CDG was like going to halfway houses and pulling people in and it's, it's like, yeah, of course these people need jobs. Like they, you don't get like a jobs package when you leave prison. Like it's good luck, go yeah. figure it out. And you're mostly going to get shown the door. And so for this to be like their window into supporting themselves, um, it's just like so it's just so upsetting from from all sides because just like so many people in this process are screwed over. It's like the the police office, however you feel about police office, police unions, like all that aside, like the people who are hurt and injured, like they yeah. don't get anything. Their, their stories like, are being exploited uh, so that other people can be enriched, basically. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but great point about how. Uh, these ex-cons, basically, many of these ex-cons mm-hmm. are very talented at conversing with people, but they they have no real outlet to do that or no real lucrative outlet to do that, and this is one of them. So of course, people do this, right? Like that, uh, it makes sense. And, and speaking of like where society is, I think I wanted to return to one point you made earlier. Um, so I, I meant to double yeah. uh, double click on this, but uh, the the scene with Pat J. Pespis and Senator Blumenthal at the end. I do think that what appeals to me about the show is it's ultimately about how difficult it is to effect any change in society, right? That, that's ultimately what one of the theses of the show is, is here are people who've uncovered a massive scandal. They have like firsthand experience being inside the boiler room and they have some amount of resources to try and expose that scandal. Can't really do anything about it. Can't really do anything about it. Like they, they've... They've talked to every single person. You know, the, the one thing they can do is record all this and put it out on HBO uh, so that people like you and me can talk about it. But mm-hmm. essentially what the, the documentary uncovers is that uh, telemarketing firms are uh, being extremely deceptive when calling and saying they represent fraternal orders of police, but that sometimes uh, fraternal orders of police are in on it, uh, but that th- nothing has been able to be done to expose these orders of police because they're extremely powerful uh, and you know, uh, no lawmakers are willing to go after them. And so uh, the, the uh, injustices continue. That's kind of what the storyline of the show is. And I do think that's a very powerful storyline that the show does do a good job of getting across. It clashes with the triumphant nature of that ending uh, where he's like looking at the photo and very proud of himself, but I don't think they're necessarily like contradicting each other. I I, I think they're like intention that he feel he still feels like he had a good journey, even though 
nothing of value was really accomplished beyond the information getting out there. Yeah, he right? met a U.S. senator. Like that's yeah. that yeah. is impressive that they got their foot in the door for these two. When you look at the footage that was being uploaded to early YouTube, like early, I'm like these are people like were doing drugs and getting drunk at work, yeah. and now they have a series on HBO. <laughs> yeah, and got to meet meet a senator and. It's it's true that this doesn't end with, uh, you know, text at the end that explains, and as a result of all their work, um, they got a hearing. You right. know, like, that's sort of the kind of thing that you expect at the end yeah. of this. Although I do, I do wish there had been, like, something at the end yes. that, like, got us up to date on, like, just yeah, the characters. Like, just some, they- or, or, or just some context of, like, you know telemarketers currently make 18 million calls yes. per year. So, you know, like something yes. to explain, like what, what is the significance of what we just, you know, right. even if it's still going on, like just explaining what's going on still, like that would be great to know. Um, yes. And, but- and let me know that, uh, Patrick Pespas has opened an Instagram and he's posted one photo. And if you want to follow him, like you can, yeah. but, um, uh, the thing I'll be curious about is because I think this part of, where this exists in the current culture is that it's extremely difficult to get anything done through what feel like the traditional means. We're like, I vote for the right person. They go to Congress. They should do the right thing. Less bad things should happen. More good things should happen. And bad people should go to jail. And these are obviously bad things and nobody's going to jail. Um, but the society we actually live in is that things tend to occur more quickly due to social pressure using actions, mediums, platforms that have almost nothing to do with the people we are uh, voting into Congress. And so I am not, there are lots of problems with internet detectives, social media mobs. But what I'm curious about the fallout from something like this is it puts in a very interesting contextual package and assigns name and blame to specific people that have broadly been anonymous until this documentary. And while I'm, I'm sure this, I haven't seen a ton of people talking about this show, so I don't think it's like reached zeitgeist status. Like their profile is raised higher than it's ever been in terms of being exposed to an average everyday person who could see them on the street, who could like find a social media profile of them and explain why what they're doing is monstrous. And so that's where I wonder where all this heads is like, yes, on one hand, like the, the the documentary itself doesn't leave you in a place where it feels like anything much has changed except for these two main characters. But it almost is as though as a lot of this stuff happens these days, the documentary is just an object that is then given to the culture. And like, what does the culture do with it mm-hmm. after that? And so that's just something we can't say too much about unless you've read anything about like, would have been any of the consequences or uh, reverberations from the release of this. I haven't done a ton of research into that, into that myself, but it's like, it would not shock me if it's not going to take down telemarketing, but does, does it spur something? Does it cause a person to resign as a result of like people like suddenly like realizing like this person at like the fraternal order of police, yada, yada. Like that is definitely where this can be valuable as a societal cultural object, even if it doesn't result in, like the takedown of the telemarketing industry at the end, because that was just, that was unrealistic to begin with. 
uh, as usual, really well said. And you're right. Like having these people's names and faces out there in the world may actually uh, effect some kind of change. David D in the chat says telemarketers succeeded when it w- reached for the wire slash David Simon level systems analysis, the telemarketing industry and how it rose to power with intersections of police and poor. Uh, I, I completely agree. And, and it was really strong when it did that stuff. And, was focused less on the Pache Pespis of it all, in my opinion. But yeah, uh, and, and you can hear by the way we're talking about, like the, the stuff that's really interesting that we're talking about, in my opinion, is not Pache Pespis's journey. It's about like what is wrong with like what is wrong with society that prevents us from fixing this problem that everyone recognizes is a problem. You know, uh, I mean, in that moment where um, in the in the office of of Senator Blumenthal, where. They're like, you know, they're, they're, they're in the documentary, they're rolling some archival footage of him as a, you know, sta- yeah. a state's attorney general and like going after like uh, f- firms like CDG. And then also on that wall is police right. patches from all over the state that he represents. And yeah. it's just like it dawns upon you in that moment. Like, this is this isn't going anywhere. Um, uh, this, yeah. is not, this is this is not someone who is going uh, to help us. And I, I think even in a, obviously I think someone who was not patch a pessimist could have made that point, uh, better. Um, uh, right. You right. know, the but moment the point that was camera made. pans to the point yeah. was made by the, yeah. the, the camera panning to that where it's like, this is yeah. just someone, someone, you know, pulled a string that got you 15 minutes. If that, um, it really felt like five minutes, um, with the, with the Senator. Um, and, uh, the rest was just going to be swept under the rug. Indeed. All right, Patrick Klepik. Anything else you want to discuss about telemarketers? Uh, I guess I, you know this is less of a me observation as much as what I'm curious to ask you as someone that just has a much broader sense of the state of documentaries. Like, what do you make of the form arriving at something like this over the longer arc of the form of a documentary, the medium? Like, it's it's like. When we arrive at this, which is like, again, I think like it's true crime documentary in like quotes because um, it exists in that universe, but not necessarily in the form that we expect. Just like as someone who's a fan of the form, like how does it feel to watch something like this arrive alongside this arc of like Netflix pop turning documentaries into pop culture? I don't know that I really feel like it's an arrival, you know, in the sense that I think that uh, there have been other documentaries about the making of the documentaries, you know, and typically like, I'll just throw out a couple like supersize me, you know, that's just one mm-hmm. example. Right. I think like those movies all really depend on how much you like the personalities. Right. And this is, this is another documentary where it's like they, they tried to, uh, it's ostensibly about this big systematic issue, but then ultimately a large part of it hangs on the personality. It's personality driven uh filmmaking which I don't oppose at all, you know, but I think it's going to really depend on how much you like the personalities. Well they bring up um, Michael Moore several times, right? Like yeah. Michael Moore is their direct inspiration and you know, Michael Moore, complicated, you know, figure filmmaker, but like part of the strengths of his work is and, and and like if you view this as amateur Michael Moore, it makes a lot more sense because they're yes. trying to do exactly like we're going to rush in the door and like get in their face. And part of what Michael Moore provides back when he was sort of at the height of, of his powers was a catharsis for the viewer, which is I'm not going to necessarily enact change, 
but I'm going to get in the face of somebody who can and essentially tell them, fuck you, but with facts. And we, and he was very good at providing emotional catharsis to people who were fed up with certain top, you know, whether it was, whether it was the, the, um, uh, like the insurance industry, like the medical insurance industry, whether it was the handling of nine 11 and, that's the vibe they're going for here, which is none of the ability, like the ability to pull that off. Right. Um, none, of, none of Michael Moore's you, you, uh, honestly formidable skills as, as a as a filmmaker and as an on screen personality. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I definitely got that. That was the influence, and it it got me thinking, Patrick. Like, why aren't there more Michael Moores out in the world? Like, why why isn't it happening more often? And I think part of the answer is. It is happening, right? It's just happening at a at a much higher frequency and at a kind of lower level than Michael Moore. Like when Michael Moore released Fahrenheit 9/11, I'm pretty sure that movie made uh, I want to say close to 100 million dollars. Yeah, something real money. something outrageous. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was like honestly, you know, something it made box office 220 million. I saw it in a theater dollars. and I yeah. was in high school and I didn't care about any of this stuff, but it was a pop culture. Yeah, that moment. is that was a cultural event. Right now, here's the thing: you don't need to have a film crew to pull off what Michael Moore did in that show. You have everyone has cell phones now, but also as people have gotten more smartphones and more recording technology, so has corporate infrastructure adapted to prevent Michael Moore's from intruding on the like mm-hmm. people now know. Like you notice, most of these places they weren't even able to get into the front door, right? Because <laughs> yeah. people, yeah. they know now, they know like, hey, if anyone comes with a camera, if anyone even comes holding a cell phone suspiciously, they're out, like kick them, you know? And so mm-hmm. what Michael Moore attempted back then is largely impossible today. And I think this documentary shows that, right? Yeah, it shows right. why there aren't more documentaries like this. It's because often you don't succeed. So now that I'm talking about it like this, it is impressive how far they were able to get. Right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think in general, and it, it, but how far they were able to get, not very far. And in general, it's very, very difficult uh, to do these gotcha things because everyone is prepared for them now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone is right. is aware and 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 ready to go. And what Michael Moore achieves is is largely impossible today. And, and this documentary shows that. So, um, so yeah, it's it's kind of quaint. My response to your question, kind of quaint. <laughs> kind of a quaint idea that we can show up with a camera and get them on camera saying a damning thing. And it's like, you're not even going to get into the building sometimes, right? Which mm-hmm. is what happens. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So anyway, I mean, and to be fair, Michael Moore got ejected from his share of buildings as well. But he also frequently- part of the point, right? Like, yeah, the, right, right. Eject, like the showing the hostility to just yeah. asking a question was a huge part of his bit. And here, like they only managed to pull it off like once going into uh you know a police union in yeah. Florida and and it's a powerful moment like you see the power of like having people act hostile to you over just like showing up to an appointment that you you know what i mean I, so I, like, I don't know i feel like i feel like the power of that has de- declined over the last few decades i think that's definitely like, true as well like back then if michael moore shows up with a camera and is it says, hey, we're, we're like, tell me about why you, you know, these workers didn't get their medical bills paid or whatever. And they'd be like, no comment, cover your cover the camera, you know, like, yeah, that's damning. Now that's just literally normal everyday behavior, right? Like, if 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 people didn't do that, that would be surprising to me, 
right? But now everyone expects that. So well, and there's the others, yeah. uh, you know, they for a brief period they um kind of connect with a journalist at Politico that has covered this. Yeah. I really wish <laughs> one of those things like really wish she had gotten like a little more intertwined with what right. they were, were doing uh, instead of just being sort of a kind of a consultant and a and a she should have been valve. making a documentary probably. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, you know, she has a moment where she explains, you know, like she got uh like thrown out of a place for asking questions. So it goes to show it's like it's not just like a Pache Pespis trying to do a Michael Moore gotcha. It's a trained legitimate right, yeah. journalist who has been doing this for years um who has a lot of like a, a a really lauded reputation for this specific topic is also getting yelled at and told to to leave because that is just the nature of and frankly you are rewarded in today's culture for telling people who want to say you're doing something wrong to get the f out like you are going to get your side riled up just as much right. by showing host- hostility is rewarded as opposed to exactly. seeing as a mark of shame and I do think this is something the documentary doesn't get into. I wonder a whole what lot. could have happened recently in society to make I that know. happen. I, well, they and they, I, I, I think in a more full feature documentary, yeah. and like this is the kind of thing where like I wish I, if there was another one I could watch tangential to this, I would. But there's a brief moment, and they barely touch on it in the documentary, where uh, they are playing calls from. Uh, it's when we pick up back in present day, and we're clearly like in the last five-ish years um um uh probably even sooner than that like it seems like it's like kind of post black lives matter or amidst that in which these the calls that are coming in are like people hate the police these days like do you know what they're trying to defund the police and i think that it like that's all a part, right? This kind of like yeah, ginning up, out, ginning up outrage about that. To be clear, like the people are out, Correct. you know, you the you the recipient of this call and me the caller are outraged that people are trying to defund the police. Yeah, Correct. And and I I that that's like a moment where they kind of touch on it with those calls and then they move on to kind of give you a sense of how these calls have changed. But I I could have watched an entire like spinoff that was just about the last like five six years right like the kind of like the trump and like biden era of presidencies like has created probably massive cultural shifts in like how these calls are handled how they exploit hostility rage political divide to probably make more money than they've ever been making before we don't get the numbers at the end but my guess is those numbers say whoop (laughs) like just business is good fair enough Uh, i think you're probably right about that well, Patrick, shall we wrap it up? Sure. Uh, overall, I think uh, a lot of thought-provoking stuff in the documentary, uh, worth checking out. Uh, some of the executional elements are going to be an acquired taste, but uh, it's definitely got me thinking about, again, how difficult it is to make change in this society, how uh, systems can exploit the weak and the poor and people who don't know any better. My favorite line from the show was one of the characters, or not one of the characters, one of the people. I think the former... FTC guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. The, the, the website watchdog person. Yeah. He says, he says uh, hey, so how should people handle these telemarketers? He's like, when they call you, hang up. That's it. <laughs> if there's one thing you can take away from this conversation, if you get a call from a telemarketer, just don't even need to justify it. Don't even need to say, sorry, mm-hmm. I'm not interested. Just hang up. Don't even say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, I want to remind folks, next week we're going to be tackling How To With John Wilson. And please let us know what you want us to cover this fall over at DecodingTV.com or at DecodingTV at gmail.com. Uh, 
And uh, find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Subscribe. Make sure you get every update as it goes live. And a huge thanks to paid members at decodingtv.com for making this podcast possible. Find more of Patrick Klepek's work at Remap Radio, available wherever podcasts can be downloaded, as well as at his newsletter, crossplay.news. He is Patrick Klepek. I am David Chen. You're listening to This Week in Streaming, a Decoding TV podcast. We will see you folks next week. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.